Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome. My lovely fellow time travellers, it's always good to know you're out there as we hurtle through history together. A big thanks to everyone who's signed up to my Patreon site. Uh, it makes this podcast possible. If you're not a member yet and you want to join, just go to patreon.com and you can search for me by name, Neil Oliver. Every week, there's a new video that Paul and I make together I'm in my home in Stirling. Uh, they're a mix of history and comment, often considering the ways in which the events of the present day are have echoes in the past, there being nothing new under the sun, as it says in the old book. Hopefully they're all thought-provoking. Some are more light-hearted than others, some are quite heavy, quite a lot of archaeology, all sorts, but there's plenty to get your teeth into, and that's what Paul and I aim for anyway. Right, now it's time for this week's love letter to the British Isles. So steal yourselves for a tale like no other, a tale of extraordinary bravery and sacrifice, a heartbreaking tragedy. Cue the music. Their spirit and dedication were amazing. They were truly the greatest eight men I have ever seen. In this episode, we're going where only the bravest dare to go. Sailing into the heart of a full-blown hurricane. Facing mountainous waves and deadly, jagged rocks. At the centre of the maelstrom, a stricken ship with a pregnant mother, two children and five crew aboard. Their call for help rang out and was answered. Eight men aboard a 47-foot lifeboat left the safety of the storm-swept, wild Cornish coast to face danger on such a scale it's almost impossible to imagine. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode we walked down Fleet Street as the words flowed and it became the spiritual home of the British press. Where are we this week? Paul, it's 1981 this week. <laughs> so it is. Uh, and it's a year when oh, all sorts of stories in the headlines. Uh, they seem to scream out from the newsstands every day. But it wasn't 
just the politics or the salacious gossip or the sporting events. It's not that I remember most. The, the news story that caught me and held me and has held me ever since and has affected me most over the years was about a crew of lifeboatmen who put their lives on the line, as they all do, time and time again, lifeboatmen and women, uh, to help others in danger on the sea. This week we're on the Cornish coast at the Penlee Lifeboat Station in Mousel. We're in the village of Mousel in Cornwall. That's spelt, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's as in mouse hole, M-O-U-S-E-H-O-L-E, but it's pronounced Mousel, you know, like M-O-W-Z-E-L in that kind of Cornish way. Mouse hole becomes Mousel. And Mousel was the location for the Penley Lifeboat Station. Is the location at Penley Point. So the two names are, are, are synonymous. You've got the location at Mousel and you've got the Penlee Lifeboat Station. I've read and, and written about all sorts of daring do and bravery and selflessness and, and sacrifice and I'm, I'm drawn to those kinds of stories. And for me, there's none more moving and affecting and unforgettable than the story of what happened to the Penlee Lifeboat crew in 1981. It's just, for me, it, it sums up so much of what I think about what people are capable of and what ordinary people will do sometimes to leave no stone unturned, no effort neglected in order to help others. It's just a story that I, I think about, I think about it every time the wind blows and the sea is rough. Uh, 1981 is a long time ago now, I suppose. Back to our teens, isn't it, Paul? Yeah. Uh, hard to hard to think actually. I mean, when someone says 1981, and I don't think about it too much, it seems like yesterday. I went to university in 1984. It all seems very recent, and then I remind myself how long ago it actually is. When you start counting up the decades, so it's probably worth reminding people what other things were happening at that time. Uh, Prince Charles married Lady Diana Spencer. That was 1981. Pope John Paul II was shot and wounded by a would-be assassin. He was in St Peter's Square uh, and he was targeted by an escaped Turkish prisoner called Mehmet Ali Agka. He survived, of course he did, but he was wounded. British MPs Shirley Williams, Roy Jenkins, David Owen and Bill Rogers, remember them? They broke away from the Labour Party and formed the Social Democratic Party. Great fanfare of, you know, a new force in British politics. It was supposed to be Bucks Fizz won the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> uh, technology entrepreneur Clive Sinclair, he of the, the first electric car. Remember the little, you know, you remember the little um, C5 or whatever it was called. Uh, but in 1981, he launched the ZX81 home computer. First of its kind. Everyone takes home computers, you can call them that anymore, but the, you know, the arrival of a computer you could have in your house, it was a major deal. I didn't have one, but I had pals that did. And Muhammad Ali fought his last fight. Shergar won the derby. That was the horse that was eventually kidnapped and disappeared, lost without a trace. Actor Ronald Reagan became the 40th president of the United States of America. And everybody was stunned that a, you know, a former actor, a celebrity, had become the leader of the free world. Where have we seen that repeated? But no one could believe it at the time. Bobby Sands, 
of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. He died on hunger strike in uh, the Mays prison. The Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, was put away for life. Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats opened in the West End of London and Chariots of Fire was on at the cinema. There were riots in Brixton and Toxteth and British police used tear gas for the very first time in 1981, used tear gas against the people. Dynasty, the American soap, remember, with Joan Collins, that launched on British television. And uh, it was also the year when uh, Tory Employment Secretary Norman Tebbit said how his father, when he didn't have work, had got on his bike and looked for work and brought down what we would call today as a Twitter storm upon himself if Twitter had existed then, which it didn't. And Ian Botham, beefy Botham, inspired English cricket to retain the ashes against the odds in a match that I happened to watch by chance. I don't watch cricket, but I saw that. I saw that astonishing performance. So it, there you go. Well, that was what 1981. Uh, wow, big, big year then. Well, yeah, lo- lots going on. You know, the year before, 1980, Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister, she had declared that she was not for turning. The lady's not for turning. You remember that line? Yeah. And uh, in the first weeks of 81, it's something that was later echoed in the rise of Jeremy Corbyn in 2017. The hard left policies of Michael Foote, who was the leader of the Labour Party then, saw his party ahead in the polls by 24 points. Wow. Like, you know, when Corbyn suddenly captured the imagination of a lot of people. Uh, Well, likewise, it had been done before by Michael Foote. I was 14. What age were you, Paul? You were 15, 16. 15. 15, yeah. And truthfully, when I look back now, when someone says the name 1981, it wasn't necessarily the case then, but somewhere along the line, now when someone says 1981, what I think about is the loss of the Penlee lifeboat with her entire crew. Because that happened that year as well. It happened at the end of the year. It happened through the night of the 19th of December. Everything about it is just graven into my, my memory and my imagination. The boat in question was called the Solomon Brown. There's something poetic about that name. It's like something from Peter Grimes. It's as though it's from a, an epic tale, the Solomon Brown. A 47-foot-long Watson-class vessel for those interested in the, in the ways of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. And she sat when she wasn't on duty or when she wasn't needed in a boathouse, high up, crouching up high on Penlee Point, on the outskirts of the village of Mausel that we've already mentioned, three miles west of Penzance. So right out there on the edge of the edge of England, right out on the westerly point. I'm sure, like many, I know Mausel as a tourist destination because it's beautiful. It's Cornwall. You know, the interior of Cornwall is different. If you spend some time in Cornwall inland, you see a lot of poverty and you see a lot of you know, where unemployment and and low wages has had an effect on people's lives. You absolutely do. Uh, But there's no denying the Cornish coast where the tourists come, where there's money spent and money to be made, is breathtaking. It's just an astonishingly lovely part of Britain, part of England. Uh, Granite cottages in the main, built a long time ago, a lot of them painted white, and they're, they're linked up by cobbled lanes that wind around uphill and down. On the beaches, there's golden sand and there's turquoise water. Mausel, it's named for the, if you go and see the harbour, it's almost comically narrow, coming in through the harbour wall. It's so narrow that they joke about it being like a mouse hole. But it's like that for protection, because it's keeping the sea out 
and there's just enough space for a boat to come and a boat to go. What it does, it reminds you about another truth about Cornwall, about the southwest, about the sea, and that is that while Mousel can look and is idyllic when the sun's shining, the fisher folk of Cornwall, there and elsewhere, they've learned a different lesson from the sea. The sea is not always blue, it's not always benign. A lot of the time it's a roaring grey-black monster. And I've said before, the coast is a ribbon, or it's like the hem of a garment that goes around the outside of the British archipelago, and in the way of a hem, it kind of joins everything together, stops it from fraying. And fishing communities in the southwest of England, in the northeast of Scotland, and everywhere in between, they share common ground because they experience what it is to try and make a living from and on the sea. And in all fishing communities, there are long tales of loss of men and boys that go out in the fishing boats and they don't come home. It's been going on as long as there's been fishing. And, you know, the, the Cornish, they understand that, like the rest. There's plenty of legends in Cornwall. In Mousel itself, you'll hear the legend of Tom Bocock, who was a, a fisherman in the past, and in some long ago December, appropriately enough, the weather had been bad for weeks, such that the fleet couldn't go out at all. And by the week before Christmas, the people were starving. They depended on fish, and there had been no catch for weeks on end, and people were getting to the end. And Tom Bocock, a lone, brave fisherman, took his ship out, took his fishing boat out into the storm, found the fishing grounds, and against the odds, landed a catch and brought it back. And the people were saved. And to this day, every 23rd of December, in Mousel, they make what they call stargazy pie. You know the pie with the, with the fish heads poking out through the crust? It's very distinctive. I'm not sure everyone finds it the most appetising thing to look at. Uh, but nonetheless, that stargazy pie, well, that commemorates the bravery of Tom Bocot. That's where it comes from. Because they got the fish in and they, they got them gutted and baked into pies and celebrated the fact that they were, never mind Christmas, they just celebrated the fact that life could go on. So, Mousel's a place that had long ago learned the challenge of the ocean. Well then, on the 19th of December 1981, the phone rang in the home of William Trevelyan Richards and he was the coxswain of the Penley lifeboat, which is to say he's in charge of it. You know, he's the skipper. He's the one that calls the shots. Yeah. They're all volunteers, though, aren't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the Royal National Lifeboat Institute is a gift we give to ourselves. It, it's volunteer. If it takes any kind of government money, it must be a peppercorn, really. But they, they depend on donations from the public, and that gives them the autonomy to do things the way they want to do them. No outside agency gets to call the shots for them. And you, everyone's seen in the pubs, on the bars, you know, you see the, the lifeboat the tins for collecting money, you know, with the coin slots in them. and You know, so they, they depend on donations. And the Solomon Brown, for example, was made with donations. Two ladies, two, two widow ladies, I believe, one by the surname Solomon, one by the surname Brown, had offered up a bequest on their deaths. And that money was used to build the Solomon Brown lifeboat. I mean, that's where it came from. It was a, a gift. You know, it was paid for by the donations in large part. I think there was possibly slightly, maybe some other money came from elsewhere, but the, the bulk of it was in these two ladies' wills.
notion that it's about people coming together for the greater good, rather than governments organising it. It's kind of stirring and inspiring, isn't it? Yes, because there is, there's a dangerous mindset where people think that the state will look after them, cradle to grave and all of that, and that, you know, that somehow you'll be looked after. But an institution like the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, it's a reminder of what people can do for people. You know, we do it for ourselves. And we are, as Winston Churchill and others have said, we are an island race. And we've depended on the sea and we've been under threat from the sea for forever. You know, for all that the sea gives, the sea takes away. And the British learned that a long time ago. And when it comes to people being in danger on the sea, fellow travellers, you know, the RNLI go out for anyone. They don't just go out for Brits, you know, anyone in peril on the sea. They go, look what's happening now with the migrants coming across the English Channel and dinghies. It's the RNLI go out and pick them up. Regardless, they don't ask any questions. If you're on the water and it looks dodgy, they'll just come and get you. That's us that do that. That's not the British state. That's the British people. It's a gift we make to ourselves and it comes from centuries of understanding that the sea's a dangerous place and it can be merciless. And if you've ever broken down on the hard shoulder of a motorway, you know, in the dark with the rain coming down and it feels great when you see the AA turn up or your whatever nominated rescue service you, you subscribe to. Well, times that by 100 if you're, out, if you're out on the ocean in the teeth of a storm and everything's gone pear-shaped and then you see that unmistakable livery, you know, the purple and the orange of the RNLI coming to get you. I mean, that's something. And it's not the British government coming to get you. It, it's effectively, it's Britain coming to get you. It's different and it's better. So the phone rang, William Trevelyan Richards, and he takes the call. Uh, that you know the, the the Coast Guard in those days they phoned him up. You didn't have mobile phones, didn't have you know they just phoned him up to tell him that a fourteen hundred ton coaster called Union Star, brand new, it just come off the slipway. Really, it was on its maiden voyage, on her maiden voyage, eight crew aboard, and it was in dire trouble. It had been reported, it called in from eight miles east of the Wolf Rock Lighthouse in southwest Cornwall. Our engines had failed and the weather was building up to be a full-blown hurricane. Force 11 is a gale, Force 12, that's it. The number doesn't go up any higher. And that's where it was and they were drifting. And they were drifting towards the rocks of Cornwall. So the situation was as dire as it could be. Tragically, earlier in the night... A Dutch tug boat had come across Union Star and had radioed them and had offered to throw them a line. You pull them away. But the skipper of Union Star was a quite a young guy. He's called Henry Morton. And he decided not to because if he had accepted the offer, the brand new 1400 ton coaster Union Star would have been salvage. He would have saved the lives of his crew, but the boat would have gone to the Dutch tug. You know, so there was, there was a major financial hit to contemplate, and tragically, Henry Morton thought he would get the engine going, and so he waved them off. Thanks, guys, but we're okay here. It was a terrible mistake. It could all have been averted at that point. It came out of the subsequent inquiry, really, that if he'd behaved differently at that point, it would all have been different. However, you can kind of understand it. It was a brand new ship. It wasn't his. He was skipping it. But he, he thought he would get things going again. Because you do, don't you? You think the worst won't happen. Anyway, he'd made his decision. The Dutch tug went off, disappeared out of sight. 
And aboard Union Star, there were eight. There was four of a crew, and there was also Henry Morton, the skipper, his wife, and her two daughters. His wife was Dawn, and uh, Dawn had two teenage girls from a previous relationship, and they were 16-year-old Sharon and 14-year-old Diane. So they're all they're all on there, a mixture of crew and Henry Morton's family. And Dawn was pregnant. And, and so you might say there were actually nine people aboard Union Star, uh, you know, insofar as, you know, a new life was, was also there yet to be born. So you've got Henry Morton, his wife Dawn, and her 16-year-old daughter Sharon and 14-year-old daughter Diane, and then four crewmen who were below decks trying to get the engine started again. So they kept on trying to get the engine going, but they finally realised it was just not going to happen. And he was, no doubt, he was wishing with all his heart that he'd taken the offer from the Dutch tug, but that time had passed and he had no other option but to make the Mayday call, the distress call, to summon the rescue services. As it was, when you know, word of, of the difficulty that he and they were in, it was a Sea King helicopter that was put up into the air first. I mean, can you imagine? It's a hurricane that's blowing. And in the face of a hurricane, I mean, even a big aircraft like a Sea King helicopter, you know, in some respects, it's a sycamore seed against the power of the planet. But up they went, and they got out to Union Star. They could see her in the water below them. And, and traditionally, you know, they would have lowered a winchman to start getting people off. But it was so bad, all they could do was watch. So they were, they're already on site. They're on the location. But back on land, Trevelyan Richards gets his uh, gets the word, he gets his coat on and gets down to assemble the crew. They're in the pub, because it's the 19th of December, half the village is in the pub. And he goes down and he asks for volunteers. And all the hands go up in the pub, you know, not just the crew, but because they all understand. It's in their culture, it's in their nature. They know what it's like, they're fishermen, besides being lifeboatmen, and they know what it means to be in trouble on the sea. So it's, it's important to, to, to say the names. Uh, the, the crew that stepped forward were Stephen Madron, Nigel Brockman, John Blewett, Charlie Greenhaw, Barry Torrey, Kevin Smith and Gary Wallace. And off they went to the, to the, the, the boathouse at Penley Point and they launched into the throat of the hurricane. Um... You know, there were more people available as volunteers than were needed to crew the boat. You can imagine, you know, there's a, there's a team of people. It's like a football team. You know, they, there's a squad from which a, a team is selected each time. And Trevelyan Richards had made sure because of the conditions, he didn't take any two members from the same family. Because in some instances, fathers and sons of the same family raised their hands. Because he knew how bad things were, he didn't take more than one person from one family. I mean, you can imagine with a hurricane coming on shore, even to get the lifeboat, you have to time it. You know, you're on the slipway and the waves are coming in and breaking right up the slipway. I mean, even just even just to get the Solomon Brown out and away took a lifetime of skill on the part of Trevelyan Richards and the rest of them. But they got out and they made their way across, you know, through the most appalling conditions. And the testimony comes from, from the helicopter crew you know, in the Sea King, and they watched Solomon Brown come in. The, the waves were running 60 feet high. 
Solomon Brown's 47 feet long. So from nose to tail, she's getting on for 20 feet shorter than the waves that are all around her. And they watched in astonishment uh, time and again as the lifeboat came alongside. I mean, the coaster's huge. Solomon Brown is dwarfed by it. And Richards keeps charging in, bow first, coming in, coming in alongside, trying to get close enough to make a rescue. And more than once, Solomon Brown was actually picked up by waves and tossed onto the deck of Union Star. And it would slide across the deck and then splash down into the water again. And that, that didn't just happen once, that happened multiple times. And yet, Trevelyan Richards and the rest of them remained undeterred. And time and time again, they came charging in, you know, tr- trying to get their opportunity. Uh, and, and, and eventually, eventually, as the helicopter crew subsequently testified, Trevelyan Richards was able to remain alongside just long enough for four shadows to jump from the deck of Union Star into the arms of the lifeboat men waiting below. They saw it all in silhouette, you know, these shadowy figures on the deck, you know, with their life jackets on and their arms upraised and and one by one, four figures jumped into the dark and were caught and were in a place of safety. And Trevelyan Richards radioed and said, we've got four off, we're going back for the rest. You're left to imagine, I mean, perhaps, perhaps it was the women because the helicopter crew, they caught glimpses of what was happening on the deck. They saw figures come from the wheelhouse and they sort of caught glimpses of, like, brightly coloured, you know, like, whatever the girls had been wearing. You know, they weren't they weren't dressed for a hurricane. They were going somewhere for Christmas. You know, they were all together on the boat so that whenever they arrived, they'd be with their dad. You know, they weren't set up for any kind of drama, but the, the helicopter crew saw figures running and there's, there's an assumption that the, the figures that got off might have been... Dawn, you know, Mrs Morton, Deanne and Sharon, and maybe one of the crewmen. But there's now four. There's now four people left behind on Union Star. And Trevelyan Richard said, we've got four off, we're going back for the rest. And nothing else was heard. Falmouth Coast Guard kept on calling out, Solomon Brown, Solomon Brown, nothing. Just a dead hiss on the radio. And it was apparent to all that catastrophe had struck. The rocks of the coast were in sight when the rescue happened. Seems that Solomon Brown was between the Union Star and the rocks. And for one thing, Union Star pushed Solomon Brown onto the rocks where Solomon Brown was smashed to pieces. And then Union Star great big cruiser that it was was fragile as an egg in the face of a hurricane and it got smashed on the rocks as well but in any event there was no more word in the end all eight souls from Union Star were lost the Morton family and the four crew mate James Whitaker, engineer George Sedgwick crewman Angostino Verasimo and Manuel Lopez and also the eight-man crew of Solomon Brown Trevelyan Richards Stephen Madron Nigel Brockman John Blewett Charlie Greenhaw Barry Torrey Kevin Smith and Gary Wallace they were all gone and, and in the end only eight bodies were recovered of 16 they got four from Solomon Brown and four from Union Star and the other eight lost forever gone into the sea and I can remember 
I remember the news footage. I remember there was footage taken from a helicopter of the upturned hull. And I think it must have been the upturned hull of Union Star. I can't remember, but I can remember footage of a, a ship turned upside down in against the coast. And, you know, in the years since, I've read a lot about it. I've read, I've read accounts of it. There was an inquiry. Of course, there was an inquiry. You know, so many people had died. It's still to this day the last, it's the last time, 19th December 1981, that the Royal National Lifeboat Institution lost an entire crew. And let's hope that record stands for all time. But it's the last time that happened. And in the morning after, back in Mausel, I mean, this is a place that had lost people before, but not in this, not like this. So it's a little place, a little community, and everyone was connected to every family that had, that had lost. And there was a call went out for replacement crew and dozens of hands went up again, right away. You know, to replace the lost eight. You know, there were already there were already more hands in the air ready to take the place. But there was a there was an inquiry to try and understand what had happened. And there was testimony given by Lieutenant Commander Russell Smith. Uh, he was the pilot of the Sea King helicopter. He was actually a, United, a US, United States officer. He was on exchange with the Royal Navy. He's doing one of these things, you know, where they swap, they swap over, you know, to get experience of other services. And he submitted a letter to the accident inquiry, which has as part of it. Throughout the entire rescue, the Penley crew never appeared to hesitate. He's talking about when they were coming alongside. After each time they were washed or blown away from the Union Star, the Penley crew immediately commenced another run-in. Their spirit and dedication were amazing. They were truly the greatest eight men I have ever seen. Go to Mausel now. Beautiful village. People will have gone many, many times for holidays, I'm sure, and you know that, that's really what the place is most known for. The lifeboat station is still there. It was left empty. There's a, there's a new lifeboat. A new lifeboat was ordered and commissioned and, and brought to the place, but it sits in a different location, in a different boathouse. And the Penley lifeboat station that Solomon Brown departed from has been left empty as a memorial ever since. It's what you'd expect. You know, it's a, a stone-built shed, and it, it sits at the top of this steep slipway. And there's a little garden a little memorial garden beside it, and that's always, well, any time I've seen it, it's always been tended and looked after. And on every anniversary, as far as I know, it still happens. On the 19th of December, all of the Christmas lights, the village goes dark for an hour in remembrance. Reporters were out on the night of it, covering it, and there was a, there was a, a local reporter, I think a local newspaper reporter, and he was on position on a cliff top where he figured he was looking out towards where the drama would be unfolding. And he swore blind that he saw the lights of the Solomon Brown coming back in. He saw, he swears to this day that he saw, he saw Solomon Brown coming back in and it's, it didn't happen. But, you know, who, who knows what he saw, what trick of the light. But it's just that idea of, you know, even after it was all over and they were all lost, that some ghostly element of Solomon Brown came back to Mausel. And... It's just a story that affects me like no other no other story. Even though I've spent years reading adventurous stuff and reading about self-sacrifice. And I think it does come back to the fact that they are volunteers. No one makes them do it. They just do it. Because to a man, to a woman, the people that go out, they do it because they know what it's like, usually. They know what's at stake. 
if you're out in the middle of a storm and your engine fails and you need help, so they line up to do it. They're just extraordinary people who would rather put themselves in harm's way than turn their backs on people in danger. And I'm haunted more than anything else by that last line from Lieutenant Commander Russell Smith. They were truly the greatest eight men I have ever seen, and I, I suspect they truly were. As the countdown began, some thought it was the dawn of a second coming. Others saw it heralding chaos and catastrophe. The dials turned, the nines mutated to zeros, the new millennium arrived. To mark its coming, a landmark building is designed by one of the world's greatest architects. Twelve towers for twelve months, a diameter of 365 metres, one for every day of the year, costing at least £800 million to build. Welcome to a new century, a new millennium. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please do write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Authorp Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and who continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF podcast production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.